What I would like to do now is transition to Hebrews. Let's turn to Hebrews 1, we'll look at verses 4 through 14. You remember that Hebrews is a Christ-centered sermon. It is a sermon that really is set for the ages as an example of what every sermon ought to do, and that is, tell us what is true and then what to do. Christ is true, and that's why we can do what he tells us to do. It urges every believer to persevere in the faith by the power of Christ. It doesn't just say, persevere, everybody, don't fall away, stay firm, and then leave you there. Then builds up and exalts Christ. Because the reason why you can persevere is Christ is the author and finisher of your faith. Because of his exalted power, we can persevere, even when it seems like we can't. In fact, this passage in particular is a lofty passage, and you might ask yourself, how does this impact me? How does this personally impact me? Well, I think as we have a loftier view of Christ, we then are able and empowered to live for him in a more obedient, God-honoring way. Hear God's word, Hebrews 1, 4 through 14. The first three verses was a comparison between Christ and the prophets. Now we have Christ and God's angels. Hear now God's word. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they shall be, will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for this passage that you have given to us to guide us and to direct us. Lord, it gives us a lofty view of what you have done for us in Christ. I pray, Lord, that our gaze would be lifted heavenward as we consider the Lord and maker of us all once more this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in the book of Hebrews, as I introduced it, I have argued that this book is not intended to dismantle Old Testament Judaism. It is not. In fact, it's supposed to show us the partial glory of the Old Testament prophets in the first few verses, but then give us the ultimate glory that comes through Christ. As we look at everything through Christ, now we see it in its fullness. In fact, there's a 400-year period of silence between the Testaments. And the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, he says something that forecasts what the next prophet would look like. So Malachi says in chapter 3 of that book, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. So he forecasts with vivid clarity what would happen when the next prophetic voice would come. It closes with Malachi, 
Now look for the next prophet, and here comes John the Baptist. This kind of Old Testament throwback, who is a contemporary of Jesus. So now this Old Testament voice is speaking, John, fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi 400 years before, and immediately upon John's coming, Jesus appears on the scene and enters his temple, just like it says. But I would like something that John the Baptist said, I would like it to guide our study this morning as we look at this passage that is on Christ and God's angels. John the Baptist says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Jesus then presents himself, and, Jesus, and, and, God, and John the Baptist says, the one who has the bridegroom, bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So John stands alongside, happy that he has come on the scene. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete, John says. Listen to what he says now. Let this guide us. John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. That is a wonderful interpretive formula as we work through this passage. Because this passage isn't going to tell you exactly how to be a better mother, or exactly how to be a better parent, or a better church member, or a citizen, or what have you. What it will do is gaze our view heavenward towards Christ in his exalted form, that we might then be obedient. There are so many portions of Scripture that simply take our eyes off the temporal, eyes off of what we see, lift them heavenward, so that we might walk according to him. He must increase, but I must decrease. The author of Hebrews continues to establish how Christ is supreme over all, so as to encourage Christians to persevere in the faith. Say, I can't persevere, I can't keep... Yes, you can, because of who Christ is. Not because of who you are, because who Christ is. And we're going to get another glimpse of how glorious Christ is as the author compares him to the angels. Of all people, the angels. Of all beings, the angels. I would like to take it in two, two forms. First, what does the passage teach us about Christ? Much of it has already been revealed in Scripture. Some of it is somewhat new to Revelation. Then what do we learn concerning the angels? Certainly it's a popular subject to talk about the angels. Well, let's see what Scripture says about the angels. Finally, we try to understand how this has an impact on our lives. First of all, look at verse 4. We learn first that Christ's name is superior to the angels. Notice the particular wording of verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Having become as much superior. It's not that he wasn't superior before. It's just that he becomes much superior to angels when he does his work on the cross, is raised again, and then seated at the right hand of the Father. In fact, this name being superior to the angels, who have a great name, brothers and sisters, a great name and a great reputation for their part in revelatory history. But listen to what Paul says about Jesus and his name. He humbled himself in Philippians 2 by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, including the names of even the angels. So Christ's name is superior to the angels by virtue of what he has done on the cross and how God has elevated him in light of this. But let's also look at what we learn about Christ in verse 5. For there we see Christ is God's only begotten son. That is, he's the highest ranking of all. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. He's never said that to an angel, that you are my son. 
Not in that sense. There's a term, Benai Elohim, which means sons of God, that's mentioned once in Job. Not the same familial word that is being used here. To which of the angels did he ever say, personally, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or sent you forth? Or again, in, verse, in the second part of verse 5, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he will say, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is God's only son. I believe he is his eternal son. He has always been his son, but it comes into more clarity in the incarnation. He has always had this within the economy of the Trinity, eternal sonship. But there's something different and more explanatory when he comes in the form of a baby. Then we see it very clearly. And this is what it refers to when he says that I, today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you means this. I have sent you forth. This can confuse us sometimes when we think of begotten or begetting. We think that's a physical process, uh, the process of one being created. It's not what it means here. It's not what the word means. It means today I send you forth. Today I put you forth to do your mission. That's what begotten means. Today I have begotten you. Also, firstborn, verse 6, and again, he brings the firstborn into the world. He says, let all God's angels worship him. Firstborn, to me, means my oldest son. That's what I think of. If I said, who's your firstborn? We'd go to your chronologically oldest child. That'd be your firstborn. This is not about time. This is about rank or status. The term firstborn means highest rank, highest status. It's literally the Greek word protokos, which is chief one, primary one. That's what firstborn means. Not that they come in time first. In fact, the word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus 4, where Israel is referred to as the firstborn of God. You know that Israel is not the firstborn in the sense that the first children of God. There were people who were believers before Israel. If you take the creation as a whole, they were created before. It wasn't all of a sudden at the time of the Exodus in 12, uh, 1245 B.C. that the firstborn of God came. But no, it means he is their chosen ones. He is their primary, their primary ranking people for the work of his redemption to come through. So that's what it means to say firstborn. You have primary status, first rank. That's what we learn about Jesus. His name is superior to the angels. We already know he's superior to the prophets who have come before. And he himself is the highest ranking of all. We also learn in verse 6, Christ is to receive worship from all, including the angels. Look at verse 6, the last portion. Let all God's angels worship him. Only God is to be worshipped, the commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So it is very important to note that Jesus always and everywhere accepts worship when it is given to him. Remember last week's text. The women see Jesus, he says greetings, and he tells them not to fear, and then they fall at his feet and worship him. He doesn't say stop. He allows that worship, and that happens throughout the New Testament. Jesus affirms and confirms that he is God by accepting worship. Otherwise, he would be violating the first commandment. But he knows he's not because he is God. Where is the angels in sharp difference never, never accept worship? In fact, one of the most vivid pictures is in Revelation 22, when John describes this portion of the vision. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. This is true of an angel, and by the way, it's true of people. 
We ought not worship people. We have for us a clear picture that Christ alone is to receive worship from all, including even the angels. Jesus' throne also, we are told, will be forever. Look at verse 7 down to verse 10. Speaks of Jesus' everlasting kingdom. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, that is, they come and they go. And his ministers, a flame of fire, they flame up, but they are extinguished in time. Verse 8, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Here is a comparison between the temporal nature of angels and their duties and the everlasting lordship of Christ from his throne. O God, is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This denotes a kingdom that will have no end. That's the kingdom of Christ. Therefore, God, talking to Jesus, your God, now there's a reference, a connection made between God the Father and God the Son. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. We have this picture into the Trinity where God the Son receives anointing from God the Father, and anointing always pictures the anointing of a king, where oil is applied to the head of the king. And here King Jesus receives his anointing to be ruler over all forever. What a beautiful picture. And we also have quotes here. By the way, all these quotes are from Psalms and one's from 2 Samuel. It's just replete with and soaked with Old Testament scripture and application to Jesus. And we have here Psalm 102 saying, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. That is the Lord laying the foundation of the earth in its beginning. So Jesus creates it all, then he is given kingship over it all. Jesus' throne will be forever. Also, we note that God will make the enemies of Christ his servants. They will serve him, either willingly as servants who beckon to his call or those who will be made to worship him. But God will make the enemies of Christ his servants. You can count on that. And that's what verse 13 refers to. The most often quoted psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So he says to the son, in application of this psalm, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. To me, these are some of the most exciting words in the whole Old and New Testament because it gives us an insight of the power of the church because of what God does through them. He says, as he puts his son at his own right hand where he is now, I will make the nations a footstool for you. The picture of a footstool, one who places his feet, it's a sign of dominion over those things. So the father says, in light of what you've done on the cross, bringing redemption to not just people but to all creation, I will make the nations a footstool for you, meaning I will make them to serve you. And this is what's happening now, I believe. I take this in his normal reading, that he is seated at the right hand of God, and God is slowly but surely, according to his own providential plan, working to bring people to himself, and will continue this process there unto the end, until he brings all to a place where they will only confess the name of Christ. I know we long for that to be tomorrow, But be patient, because he's working to make the nations a footstool. That's why Jesus says, I will build my church. It's the will of God as he works and wills to bring the world into submission to himself. And I would submit to you that you, as a member of the church, are part of that plan of dominion. That's a beautiful picture 
of what God is doing in the world and why we should take seriously what God tells us to do in the world. The passage reveals much to us about Christ in verses 4 through 14. Christ's name is to be superior to the angels, because it is. Christ is God's only begotten Son. He's the highest ranking of all. Christ is to receive worship from all, including the angels themselves. Jesus' throne will be forever. God will make the enemies of Christ his servants. Now, what do we learn about angels? <clears throat> you know, there are, has always been a preoccupation of sorts with angels. Medieval art reveals really more biblical notions of angels. They look more warrior-like, at least. But when you get into the Renaissance period, you know what the angels start to look like then, don't you? Like my picture when I was a three-year-old. A chubby little curly-haired kid who's sitting on a, a cloud and has a bow and arrow. Not even a good bow and arrow, by the way. A bow and arrow, Cupid. You know, that's the picture we got of, a, uh, of angels. Nothing could be further from the biblical truth. But to make matters worth, worse, Modern, really non-Christian versions of angels have come into popularity. I remember in the 80s, there was a show called Highway to Heaven. You remember that one? And you got Michael Landon, who everybody loves, because he was little Joe, and he was also the father in Little House in the Prairie. How can you not like him? And he serves as a hitchhiker, who's an angel, with his sidekick, and they go around helping people secretly. Nice thought, but nothing uh, really even remotely close to it. Although that seems to be more biblically minded than the next one, a movie named Michael. Okay, you laugh, that means you saw it. I, feel, I pity you. It's John Travolta as a foul-mouthed, chain-smoking angel trying to hide his feathery wings under a trench coat. Now that's believable. They look like duck wings is what they look like. Angels in the Outfield, another masterpiece by Disney, where a bunch of ghost-like angels help a baseball team win. Now, I wish that were true, because then the Royals could be helped in the outfield, and the infield, and the dugout, and everywhere else. But it's not the biblical picture of angels that we receive. Then City of Angels, aw. A movie where an angel falls in love with a human and chooses to give up immoral, immortality, immorality, didn't give that up, uh, to give up immora, immort, immor, immortality to be with her. How sweet, how cute, but how ridiculously unbiblical was that? Then Touched by an Angel, which I haven't watched at all, I'm glad to say. But I'm sure that the picture of John Travolta as an angel is probably better than whatever's in that particular show. And then It's a Wonderful Life. There at least we learn how angels get their wings. <laughs> Angelology, the study of angels, it is more involved than you might think. The scripture doesn't give us in-depth information, but there are many points about angels that are revealed. And I just want to cite those for you. The last one will relate directly to the text we have, because there's a little revelation given there. But I want to outline for you what we can know about angels, because I think it's a popular, there's popular enough misunderstandings to at least be equipped to know what the Bible does say. If you want particular references to these, see me after. I'd be glad to give those to you, or email me, and I will give those to you. But I want to just highlight some points that I hope will help you think biblically and correctly about angels. First of all, physically, angels are finite, limited to one space, extremely wise, extremely powerful, and do not have material bodies as such. First of all, they're finite. That means they're temporary. They're limited, much like us. They're created beings. They're limited to one space. They cannot be everywhere at once. And I say this because it's important. Satan is an angel, a fallen angel. He is unable to be everywhere at one time. He is not omnipotent or omniscient like God is. And so it's a bit naive for us to say that the devil's really tempting me. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I think the devil's legacy could be doing that, which is your flesh and the world. But the chances of Lucifer, son of the morning, spending much time with Tony when he has six billion other people and a lot more influential ones, it's probably not that high. I'm not saying he never has. I'm just saying be careful about giving too much credit to one who is limited. He is not God. He does not have the ability to be everywhere. He is undoubtedly focusing his efforts on certain people that are key and crucial. We don't know exactly who they are. But be careful when you blame it on Satan is what I'm saying. Because you got enough problem with your flesh in the world, let alone Satan and his legions. But understand that angels are limited to one space. They cannot be everywhere. They are extremely wise. And I think this is something we, miss, or we forget. Their intellect has developed over thousands and thousands of years, maybe more than thousands and thousands of years, depending on when they were created. So they have developed experience without a physical deterioration like we have. So thousands and thousands of years go on to build up their experiences and their wisdom. They are extremely powerful. Agents of war in the Old Testament wiped out a whole army of the Assyrians. Two held back a mob, a mob of men in Sodom. So we know that they are powerful beings. They do not possess material bodies as such. Now, fallen angels are as evidence where they possess human bodies. However, angels in their created form have some kind of heavenly makeup. So these things we know and base from Scripture. But also, angels are divine messengers. We see this clearly. Angels act as messengers of God throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, particularly delivering warnings, issuing proclamations, interpreting visions. That's a key role for them. You remember the angels speaking to Hagar in the early part of Genesis. In Revelation, they talk to large amounts of people, give an issue, a, a message of warning to Lot. Sometimes they bring good tidings of great joy, like the advent of Christ. So they are angelic messi- or divine messengers of God to, to share his will. Now, I think what's important is the angelic activity was heavy while the scripture was still being written. Uh, the need for that kind of announcement isn't as necessary with the scripture in our hands. But they will again have an instrumental use of, by God in the days that we call the last days, for sure. Angels are divine messengers. They are also instruments of God's will. Angels sometimes carry on the will of God on earth. Angels are particularly active in the sequence that I mentioned earlier, known as the last times. Uh, in fact, we think of one time where he wiped out the army of the Assyrians, 185,000 people. Other times, they're able to sell indivi- save in- individual humans. Isaac, Daniel, Peter. References are replete through Scripture where angels serve in this instrumental way for God to advance his plan of redemption and advance his people. Daniel saved from the lions by angels. Angel frees the apostles from prison in Acts 5. The law put into effect through the angels in Acts 7. Herod struck down in Acts 12. Angels free Peter from jail. The instruments of God, for sure. I want to address just very briefly one popular notion as well. The notion of guardian angels. Often you'll hear people talk about your guardian angel may have been watching out for you. Maybe that's true. I think where we have to be careful is that we don't have a way to interpret how God does his providence. But he does use angels in his providence. We know this. Scripture says it. In fact, if you look at the Psalms, angels encamp around those that fear him. Psalm 91, angels guard you in all your ways. Daniel 12, Michael protects your people. And even Matthew 18 has this reference to children having their angels in heaven. Luke 15, angels rejoicing in heaven over us. Acts 12, Peter's particular angel that helped him. And of course, we hear here, we have in the book of Hebrews, that some have even entertained angels unaware. So we know they have interaction, we just don't know how to interpret it, so we ought to be careful not to attribute everything to an angel. God works his decrees through providence. 
angels are one way in which he works out his providence. And it's my belief that it won't be till heaven till we see how he worked out all that providence. And it'll be one of the many reasons why we'll glorify him forever, because a lot that's not clear now will be clear then. So let's not get ahead of ourselves and say this is an angel or that. Know that he does those things, but in heaven we'll see the full, the full wealth of his providence and how he worked out our lives. I searched out John Calvin on this, because John tends to be a bit stiff at times. So do I. And so I thought I'd read about what he says about guardian angels. Expecting to be able to tell you that there's no such thing, because it takes me out of my comfort zone. But listen to what Calvin says. But the point on which the scriptures especially insist is that which tends most to our comfort and to the confirmation of our faith, namely, that angels are the ministers and dispensers of the divine bounty towards us. Accordingly, we are told how they watch, watch out for our safety, how they undertake our defense, direct our path, and take heed that no evil befall us. Now, I can't say what God does for sure, but I pray for you Christian doctors that he has his angels watching over you as you handle someone's life. And I hope that's the truth, that he does that. And I think he probably does. I can't tell you the distinctives, but the scripture tells us they are there. They're doing his work. Also, I'd point out to you, angels are sometimes designated solely as God's attendants. In other words, they were created for one reason, to say holy, 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 over and over, and that's all they will ever do. That's the beauty of the heavenly realm. That's how much God is worth it. We have a number of seemingly different types of heavenly beings identified in Scripture. We have the cherubim, identified in Ezekiel as being one and the same of the four living creatures. The seraphim, maybe these are hierarchies of angels. We don't know for sure. We know there's an archangel, the heavenly host in Isaiah, the seraphim, the 24 elders. And there are only three angels actually named in the Scripture. Do you know that? There is Gabriel, Michael, and Satan. Let's take a moment about Satan. He is the chief fallen angel. And Satan, the word itself, comes from the word accuser, adversary, opponent. What we learn about Satan, it's brief, but it's enough for us to get the picture. Lucifer, or a morning star, fell from heaven because he tried to seek God's glory. We see this briefly stated for us in Isaiah and Ezekiel. Luke records seeing Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And we are to understand that he took a third of all those angels with him, and they are now what we consider fallen angels. And we know that there will be a place for them, and his end will be eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. God will crush Satan under the feet of the church, Romans 16. Revelation 20, Satan thrown into the abyss, Satan thrown into the lake of burning sulfur forever. So we know what his personal end is, and he is a personal real being who will be destroyed by God forever. The Bible contains a number of descriptions of the character of Satan, and the bottom line is he's a great deceiver, a tempter of mankind, but Christ triumphed over him. And in, in him, we can combat him. Now let me be very careful to tell you this. For about 10 years, there was this movement called the spiritual warfare movement. And it was foolhardy in my mind to tell believers that they should go look for demons and then confront them personally. Under no circumstances could we ever take on any angel. Why would you ever go up to Satan and try to take him on, even if he was there at that particular moment? We are at any moment to be relying upon Christ. So pray to Christ. I'm not saying there's not demonic activity. I'm saying go to Christ over that activity. He is your defender. We are not our own defenders, and we are not big and strong enough to take on a demon or the devil. 
Finally, I would say to you that angels are ministering spirits to the people of God. That brings us back to our text. Look at verse 11. Comparing with Christ again, (coughs) first the angels, they will perish, (coughs) but Jesus, you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. That is, they have their time of usefulness and then they're, they're put off. Verse 12, like a robe, you will roll them up. That's Christ. Like a garment, they will be changed. So they have a particular purpose and they'll be, that purpose will be over. But you are the same, that is Jesus. Your years will have no end, and to which the angels of Easy ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So we have a very strong purpose statement for why there are angels. They're sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They are there to serve the cause of Christ, to exalt Christ. It makes perfect sense why the angels say in Revelation 22, don't worship me. You're totally missing the point if you're worshiping me. I'm here to point to him. Worship God, they say. And that is their goal and their task, and that's what their mission is. And they will accomplish it by God's will. They will point us to Christ. It's wonderful, wonderful and encouraging to know God uses supernatural means to maintain his redemptive plan. Our confession says it well in chapter 23. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature. The comparison between Christ and God's angels was not meant to discredit or demean angels. I hope you see how powerful and majestic they are. But it's to show that like the prophets, Christ is superior to them. Christ is superior to them. How does such lofty teaching and and, uh, meditating, how does this impact our lives? Well, what we have studied from these ten verses consists largely of quotes from the Old Testament. It's lofty, it's mighty for sure. And I want to remind you again of the purpose of the writer of Hebrews. He's working to establish how Christ is the supreme one over all, so as to encourage us to persevere in the faith. Your ability to persevere, brothers and sisters, is relative to your view of Christ. If you have a low view of Christ, you will have a low tolerance against sin. But as your view of Christ raises, you decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. This passage helps us to see how very powerful he is. If angels who are way, way, way more powerful than you, much smarter than you, been around a lot longer than you, if he is superior to them, certainly he can help you with whatever's bogging you down today. Whatever it is, your Savior is more powerful than that. Whatever is bothering you, whatever's hurting you, whatever insecurity you have, you have this great Savior who's so great that even the angels are made to bow before him. Take whatever practically that means. How do I be a better parent? Listen, you can't be on your own. But you serve a Savior that's given you promises. And those promises are true. And he gives you supernatural means to uphold those promises and to see them lived out, both by his Spirit's work and his providential workings. No thing is undoable that he commands you to do. That's how powerful he is. It gives us that great, great confidence. I would like to also point out, just as I mentioned earlier, that if we constantly have the attitude that our life is about us decreasing and him increasing, we'll see nothing but victory come. Yes, it will come with a realization of how sinful we are. But we'll also see the victory of Christ in that, in our own life, moving along in this upward trail that leads us to heaven, where finally, when we see him face to face and see all the workings of his providence, 
we do nothing but glorify him and worship him forever. I'll just give you these few direct ways in which this impacts us. We must worship no one but God. Angel worship in its positive light is, is forbidden. That is, the angels, the way they really appear in Scripture, elevating them above what God is. But also, undue credit to Satan in a negative light. That also can be very, very negative and sinful. Now, I don't want to make the mistake that C.S. Lewis warns us against to act as though they're not there. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying recognize what they can do. Secondly, God uses supernatural means, even supernatural beings, to accomplish his redemptive goals. Don't worry. The church will be victorious. Now, do your part in responding to the gospel and your obedience, but he will build his church, and nothing will prevail over that. And finally, all redemptive history and redemptive future is about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the center of it all. You must be connected to him. By comparing Jesus and the prophets and Jesus and the angels and Jesus and the priests later and Jesus in anything, we realize this one truth. We must be connected to Christ. Christ is the Lord, the King, the Maker. He's ruling. He is who we ought to be connected to. I hope you are. What is our chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In a word, the worship of God is our goal, isn't it? It's a key component of the mission of our church. We don't just write that for no reason. It's to mature as a community of Christians who love to worship their God. That's central. The angels are glorious and powerful. Christ, though, is more glorious and more powerful. This exalted view of Jesus enhances our worship. Let us remember the words of John the Baptist once more as we close. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful for our exalted Savior, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, that you are our King. And I pray, O God, that we would be a church that adheres to the words of its King. And I pray that you would use your church to stomp on Satan, to stomp on his work, and to see your kingdom established on earth. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.